Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Shootings involving police officers have come under scrutiny across the country. One of the biggest criticisms was that some police departments investigated shootings that involved their own police officers. The Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association has released first-of-its-kind-in-the-nation guidelines for police-involved shootings, and those guidelines recommend that police departments do not investigate their own. That's just one of the recommendations. Joining us today to talk about these guidelines, Dauphin County District Attorney Ed Marsico and Cumberland County District Attorney David Freed. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Good morning. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so what was the genesis of these recommendations, these guidelines? We have a best practices committee uh, as part of our Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association that's taken a look at various issues that are uh, sometimes problematic for prosecutors, including how we record interrogations would, would be one example. Uh, officer-involved shootings, of course, has gotten a lot of publicity the last few years, probably more so than any other issue uh, you know, that we take a look at. But we've also looked at eyewitness identification, something you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's gotten some other... Uh, some some attention over the last few years. Uh, so this committee studies these issues. Uh, there's a lot of give and take, and then comes up with recommendations for prosecutors across the Commonwealth, realizing that this is a, a big Commonwealth with 67 distinct counties, ranging from a, a county like Philadelphia, uh, you know, to a county like Tioga, uh, with everything so, sort of in between. So that's that's the genesis. Uh, our best practices committee to to take a look at these issues. Now, Dave, it wasn't just district attorneys, though, you consulted with outside groups, right? Sure. Uh, when you're doing something like this, everybody loves to, to talk about stakeholders. Uh, so you certainly want to engage with community groups. You want to engage with the police, police chiefs, because these are the people that, that, that we'll be dealing with. You know, we're, we're living in a world uh, sort of after everything that, that happened in, in, in Ferguson, outside St. Louis, and the things that have happened since then. You know, there was just some news last week from Charlotte. It seems like there's one every week. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we've actually been dealing with these in the Commonwealth for years, too, just not maybe in, in such a public way. And I think we have to be, as, as people involved on our side of the criminal justice system, whether it's prosecutors or police, we have to be cognizant of, of, of what the public is thinking and what the public expects in, in, in 2016. So one of the most important things uh, involved in this has been communication, not only with the groups that we deal with, but now communicating this uh, publicly so people know uh, essentially what the recommendations are. But we can't emphasize enough their, their best practice recommendations. It might not necessarily work for every county uh, because, you know, very diverse, uh, large uh, state with, with cities and towns and everything in between. And in other words, what you're saying is that these are voluntary. Correct. That if a county uh, decides to use and follow these best practices, these recommendations, that they do it on a voluntary basis. There's nothing written in stone or in law that says they must do this. Right. And and what we found is when, when you roll something like this out and one county sees another county maybe using all of these practices they're going to they're going to follow along and we we've done that informally for years i'd call dave or another colleague and say how do you guys handle a b or c you know i didn't want to reinvent the wheel so to speak uh in those situations so yeah these are voluntary guidelines but i, I think you'll see uh 
maybe not strict adherence to them, but but at least I, I think most counties will f- follow them uh, for the most part. I mean, just a personal opinion, looking down through the recommendations, which have you know, been lauded even by uh, American Civil Liberties Union, for example, in uh, Pennsylvania, it would seem that uh, police departments or counties, it would be in their best interest to do that, to, to follow these guidelines, unless there's something to hide. Correct. And really, the the big thing is ensuring the integrity of these investigations. We want to make sure that there's public confidence in the investigators and in the prosecutorial decision, whether it's a decision that the shooting was justified or a decision to file charges. uh, The integrity of the investigation is really what's most important here. One of the most significant recommendations I mentioned just in the uh, introduction is that there be an independent investigation. In other words, if a police officer is involved in a shooting, that that same police department is not doing the investigating. Now, under your recommendations, the DA in that county, the district attorney, would oversee that investigation, but it would be another police department, another prosecutor, uh, you know, state police that would do the investigating. Why, Dave? Well, I think it's important for everybody to to, to note, and, and this is not necessarily the, the easiest thing, I think, for people to understand sometimes, that the, the district attorney is the elected chief law enforcement officer of the county. Now, that doesn't mean that we control the police. Uh, we work together closely with the police, and in a lot of counties, uh, there are, are local rules in place that require approval of of major charges in Cumberland County, we have a more extensive list, uh, but ultimately the decision on what gets charged and what gets taken to court is the district attorney's decision. So, it's sort of a natural that the the district attorney would want to oversee the investigation. Uh, I don't think the importance of the independent investigation can be overstated. We're, we're very well set up to do this in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania because we have the Pennsylvania State Police. And in many instances, if, if uh, for example, you're in a smaller county that doesn't uh, have uh, a, an extensive uh, group of county detectives to do the investigation, we can call in the Pennsylvania State Police and they can send in a, a team with the experience and resources to do it. And I think that's that's very important. Uh, you, you take the people who have uh, an interest in the outcome of the case out of it. You make sure you have a fair and independent investigation so that we as district attorneys can make our best judgment uh, on on the facts and the evidence. And, and that's just one less thing that can be questioned down the road. Would you call that the most important part of these recommendations? Yes. You would. Okay. Now, I mentioned earlier that the ACLU uh, did say that these recommendations, these guidelines were common sense, but they did have a criticism. And I've heard this, I heard, you know, I saw a a newspaper story that quoted uh, a law professor that said, okay, well, district attorneys, you know, if you Ed Marsico in Dauphin County, if there's a police department in Dauphin County involved in a shooting, you still work closely with that police department. Why not get a district attorney, a prosecutor from another county, a neighboring county, or another county in Pennsylvania to investigate? Because that's what I'm elected to do. Uh, you know, I make those decisions whether it's a, a regular citizen every or a police officer every day. And it's our job as district attorneys to decide, uh, you know, whether to file criminal charges, whether whether to bring a, a prosecution. And we can if there's a method set up that if there is a conflict, if there's an officer that's my cousin, you know, I, I can refer that uh, either to the office of attorney general or or, or somewhere else. 
So there, there's a system in place for that. But you know, the citizens of Dauphin County elected me to make those tough decisions. And, and there's probably no tougher decision to make sometimes than in these officer-involved shootings, especially now with the stakes as high as they are. Um, you know, when I became DA, I didn't like that agencies investigated their own. So we've had the county detectives, our criminal investigation division of my office has been investigating these officer-involved shootings for over 15 years now. Uh, and, you know, I, th- I think we have a track record of being independent and, and impartial in those. But there are some that think, listen, there's when I'm in the midst of one of these, I'm kicking myself saying, Boy, I wish there was, you know, maybe we should have passed that law where we gave these to somebody else, or I should have sent it to Dave or the attorney general or something like that, because they're not always easy to do. But but we have to make the tough decisions. But knowing the atmosphere we're in today, where you're always going to have someone question transparency, wouldn't it just be easier to refer it to someone else? But there's always going to be a question of, you know, who do I pick to refer it to? Or there's, it's our job. I live in this community. I'm elected by the individuals, you know, by the citizens of Dauphin County. It's I'm the one closest to it, and we make these decisions every day. You know, we don't get media attention when we decide if you know an average citizen is justified in, in defending him or herself. Uh, these we do, but we're used to applying the law, knowing our juries, knowing what's going to happen here. Yeah, that's our, that's for us to do. Scott, mm-hmm. I, I feel strongly that. The decision has to be made by somebody who's accountable to the community. I think Ed mentioned it. You know, we're out there every day. We're we're going to church. We're going to sporting events, uh, and and we are accountable to the communities that elected us. You know, these are the decisions that 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 we volunteer to make. You know, we 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 don't relish having to make them, but that that's why we run for these offices. And you, you consider that uh, when you make the decision to run. And uh, I want I want to be the person making making that decision. Obviously, unless I have a conflict, and then I'd refer it. Okay, so district attorneys, you explained that. But if it is referred to, say, county detectives in your counties or state police in your counties, you know, let's face it. Now, sometimes they don't always, but sometimes they do have relationships sure. with the local police departments. They know each other. That, sure, they do. And, and, you know, the same goes for, for us. You know, we have relationships you know, with various individuals, it's when does that relate? When is that relationship so close to constitute a conflict? You know, is it somebody that I see once in a while, or you know, that that sits across from me at church, or, or is it somebody that I know and, and have a relationship with? And if if that exists between the cops, you know, those cops aren't going to be part of the investigation. Uh, but again, we we have to be aware of that and know that those conflicts can arise, or even if the appearance of a conflict is there, we want to you know, remove that appearance. Okay, you just talked about appearances, but um, we kind of, from what you're describing, kind of have to count on you to know that that, that, that relationship exists. Correct. And, and, and us as prosecutors, we have to count on the cops. I don't know who every investigator has mm-hmm. worked with or is friends with. You know, we have to rely on them. And you're going to have to do that, you know, at some stage in, in any process, um, you know, unless we're bringing in somebody from Alaska, an, an independent team, you know, or out of state. It's You're going to have possi- the possibility of relationships. Uh, but, you know, we have, we have to, to work on that and look at that. Yeah, don't bring him for Alaska. That cost a little money. Yeah. For, you know, 
unless you do it by uh, email, and that would be a little more uh, difficult. Uh, okay, so let's talk about some of the other recommendations. Crime scene secure, firearms not moved, all body cameras and photographs collected. Who does the collecting? Well, the 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 investigators or whatever uh, forensic group is is working with the investigators. So if it was if it was the state police, it would be their forensic services folks. Uh, uh, many places there are there are county teams uh, that would do it. That's another one of the decisions uh, that that has to be made. Uh, law enforcement has gone the way of uh, a lot of sort of civilian evidence folks as opposed to sworn law officers. That's actually a real positive in a, in a situation like this because you don't have the same person doing interviews uh, and doing the gumshoe work that you have collecting the physical evidence and analyzing that. There's actually a separation uh, between it. You have the lab folks and the investigators. It's 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 not uh, like it looks on TV, oh, most, see, TV. most of the time. <laughs> see, no, okay, something you, you just brought up, though. Unfortunately, and I know I've said this to the two of you when you've appeared in the program before, but... Many of us, if not most of us, get our idea from what a crime scene looks like or an investigation, a prosecution from TV. Sure. TV, all these shows, there's a photograph, a photographer who is taking photographs constantly. Does that really happen? Yes. Uh, and and one of the things that, that sometimes my forensic folks roll their eyes about is I want a video of the scene as much as possible before anybody touches anything you know and now we can do that more easily with the technology that we have so i want the video done and then we are photographing uh from uh distance and and then in close photograph photographing everything there with little markers mm -hmm. that is like it looks on tv mm -hmm. if you look at, at the recommendations though you, you can tell this is a this is a, a, a 2016 recommendation because we say for a larger scene you want to use a total station device which is a laser mapping device yeah i uh, saw the, 3d mapping i was wondering about that yeah, yeah. because that that creates you know you want to create the best uh evidence of, of what happened you know the best evidence of what happened would be an eyewitness that saw it and you may have that or you may not but you can build uh the picture of what happened through a recreation of the scene if you do the processing correctly and i think it's vital that we do the processing correctly we're going to take some phone calls in just a moment you're listening to smart talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing recommendations made by the Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association for investigating police-involved shootings. Our guests today, Cumberland County District Attorney David Freed and Dauphin County District Attorney Ed Marsico. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. And I promise we're going to take some phone calls here in just a moment but something else in the recommendations we were just talking about crime scenes uh, if more than one officer is involved officers should avoid talking to one another you know I, I saw that and I thought to myself Ed, how is that possible I mean let's face it when these police officers have been involved in a shooting that's, that's probably one of the most emotional moments of their lives they're scared, too. Right. And they're nervous, the whole bit. How do you keep someone from talking to their partner if they've been in, involved in a shooting? Well, normally there's a response when there's an officer-involved shooting of, of a multitude of officers. Uh, you know, nothing's going to get police officers to a scene faster than hearing that there's... Officer down, uh, yeah. yeah. So we, uh, when those off other officers arrive, the individuals that are involved in the shooting, if there's multiple ones involved, we try and keep them separate as best we can. Now, 
you know, could they talk right afterwards? Sure. But what I've seen, you know, in recent years, as we've made a lot of changes here, is, you know, those officers have separated. We gathered the, as you've talked about, the, the procedures for, for gathering the weapon, you know, trying to make sure, uh, you know, that they don't have the, the chance to sit down and, and talk right away. And with all the commotion that's going on in a scene like that, believe it or not, it's sort of difficult for, for officers to get together. Um, you know, something that's important to keep in mind here is what is our role as DA? And our decision is, can we file a charge if it's a fatal shooting? You know, can we prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a homicide occurred? Can we prove a murder or a manslaughter uh, occurred? That's our job. Not, sh- you know, necessarily shoulda, coulda, uh, you know, in a policy you know, their policies and procedures, our job is, can we prove a case of criminal homicide beyond a reasonable doubt? Uh, And if so, file those charges and take it to a jury and and prevail. Uh, And to do that, we have to look at the justification laws of Pennsylvania, which provide that in certain cases, just like you and me, an officer can act in in self-defense. Go ahead, Dave. Well, Scott, you know, these are decisions that we make every day. Right, but this this uh, recommended best practice guideline is a recognition that the public is perhaps more interested in these decisions and and maybe more invested in these decisions uh, than in the decision about whether I'm going to charge somebody with uh, simple possession of drugs or possession with intent to deliver, the kind of decisions we make every day. But at its core, it is what uh, Eddie says it is. It's we're making the kind of decision we make every day. Is this a crime or is it not? And is it a crime that we can prove? Mm -hmm. All right, let's take some phone calls. Bill is in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I have a, uh, a comment or a question regarding an allied issue. Uh, it seems to me that a lot of this is being driven by the general public and their distrust of the police being fair in a lot of instances. Now, in Ephrata, there was an incident that occurred recently, and it's my understanding that the police are to follow all traffic laws just like the average citizen unless they are responding to an emergency with their lights and sirens on. In effort, there was a car making a left turn, and I believe it was a sergeant drove into the back of him at 38 miles an hour because he was checking his computer. Now, it is illegal for the average citizen in Pennsylvania to text while driving. And if that had been an average citizen, at the least he would have been given a summons for texting while driving and reckless driving. It appears that they have a review, and the sergeant, because he's part of the thin blue line, is going to just get some sort of a reprimand written into his record. And I would like, as difficult as this may be for the DAs, to make a comment on the fairness and how this leads to improving relations with the general public. Thank you very much for your call, Bill. Well, uh, I can't speak to the specifics of of that situation. If it was covered in the press, I I didn't read about it. And uh, certainly there's a very capable district attorney in in Lancaster County uh, who who could weigh in. 
what I think you have to remember is that uh, police exercise discretion on the street every day. Uh, whether in a fender bender somebody's going to be cited with careless driving, uh, if they're the driver that's at fault, they may or they may not be, uh, depending on the discretion that's exercised by the police officer. We actually just had a case recently in Cumberland County uh, where a police officer was involved uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a little traffic tie-up and did get cited uh, with careless driving uh, while performing uh, his duties uh, as a police officer. The, the caller makes an excellent point, which is, uh, and and I think it, it frankly emphasizes what we're doing here. Uh, and I'm not just saying this because I'm the communications chair of the Pennsylvania DAs Association. You know, communication is vital here. And and if that if, if the facts are as as the caller states, that needs to be explained. It needs to be explained why this person is being cited or why this person's not being cited. Uh, sometimes discipline within the within the police department might mean more than a $25 fine, but those are the things that I think need to be explained. If the public has a question within reason, we should try to answer those questions. During the break, I mentioned that we were at, a, at Ed and I and, and some of our colleagues were at a, at a national meeting and the, and the district attorney from St. Louis was there who was involved in, in the Ferguson case. Very well regarded nationally, very experienced. Uh, and as I was watching the coverage of that case and, and what went on, one of the things that I think was could have been improved upon was the communication. Essentially, the DA uh, stood up and said, I've been doing this for a long time. We're going to put it in the grand jury. Trust me, we'll do an investigation. We'll let you know what happens. And we saw what happened, and ultimately the Justice Department came in, and they didn't file any charges either. So, uh, you know, from our end, it, it, it appears, at least from my perspective, it appears that, that things were done correctly, and, and the evidence was weighed, and, and a decision was made. But I think in this day and age, we have to communicate a little better with the public to let them know what's going on. The case that, that Ed just had in Dauphin County, I think, is a prime example of that. Which one's that? Uh, we had a case where uh, a young man was killed by a Harrisburg police yeah. officer oh, yeah. where he yeah. that threatened... His family with it with a knife, um, and, and in that case, you know, unlike 15 years ago when I had done one of these cases, I, I probably would have said, as the DA in St. Louis did and Ferguson, you know, hey, under investigation, no comment, we'll get back to you. Uh, but you know, because of what's changed the last few years, we handled these differently, and, and in that case. Uh, we thought it was important to make a preliminary statement, which is part of the recommendations here, uh, to, to talk about what preliminarily we believed happened, and we followed it up with a complete investigation. But but to put the public, uh, you know, sort of on notice as to where we were going with the investigation as to what was going on, and in that case, we recovered the knife. Uh, it was a Sunday night until Monday morning. By Monday morning, we had a press conference talking about the case and actually showed a photograph of the knife to show, uh, you know, what we believed preliminarily happened. Mm -hmm. But along those same lines, uh, in these recommendations, and this has been news in the last week or so because Governor Wolf vetoed a bill that uh, would have kept police departments, <clears throat> investigators, from releasing the name of a police officer involved in, shoot involved in a shooting for 30 days. Now, you opposed that. You supported the bill that would have allowed uh, the name to be withheld for 30 days. When you're talking about transparency and communication, how does that, uh, how does that judge? Well, that bill still allowed us as district attorneys to release it. So it, you would have it some... Did, it didn't affect... The, the bill that the governor vetoed did not affect us, uh, you know, in, in that regard. Um, the guidelines that we've proposed, you know, recommend that uh, if the person is charged, of course, the name would be released as 
any other name would be. Uh, but if the officer is found to be justified, that the officer's name not be released, just as if we did a, a child abuse investigation uh, of someone and found uh, that there weren't, there wasn't enough evidence to bring charges, we wouldn't say, "Hey, we just investigated John Smith for child abuse. We're not bringing charges." Uh, but you know, that was our investigation. Now the guidelines provide. Uh, an opportunity uh, for, in certain circumstances, the name to be released. Yeah, the foremost thing in our mind is is the safety of those officers. Um, I've released the names. You know, I've sort of deviated in my past practice, uh, you know, even where the officers were justified. uh, You know, I I have released the names in the past, and, you know, it'll be a case-by-case basis for me. I don't Mm -hmm. know if Dave wants to win. it is, you know, the the bill was an interesting thing for us because uh, ultimately, as it relates to the criminal investigation, that's a decision that we have to make. And frankly, I'm not sure the legislature can tell us whether we can or can't do that in terms of separation of powers. Uh, but the, the, the recommendations, uh, I think, allow for uh, the appropriate uh, cooling off period, but allow the discretion to, to be vested in the district attorney to to uh, uh, release the name or not. Uh, you know, the child abuse case is the best example. We get thousands of of uh, child abuse referrals uh, every year. I have stacks and stacks on my desk that I look through every single one that we get in the county, and a, and a huge number of those are unfounded. And even of the ones that are founded, uh, often criminal charges aren't filed. And we aren't releasing those names because we're looking into those people. We look into it, and then if a person's charged, uh, then the name gets released. But I think this is an issue that really bears some discussion within the county, I think, or within the county, within the Commonwealth. Uh, and I think there are certain police departments that, that have it in their policy to release the names within a certain amount of day. I think Philadelphia, am I correct on that? Philadelphia does, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because the argument is that police are different. Now, Ed, you said about you want to make sure you protect the safety of uh, the police officer and his or her family. But, uh, you know, when we're talking about transparency and in this atmosphere today, we have people who say that, you know, this is a different. They're, they're public servants and that their names should be released. No, I agree. Uh, they are different in, in that respect. Uh, but just like everyone else, they also enjoy a presumption of innocence uh, regarding criminal charges. Uh, and they also have a right to, you know, their, their reputation and not being defamed in, you know, the world we live in of social media and fake news and everything else that, that that's out there nowadays. Uh, you know, they, they enjoy the right to... to having their reputation uh, preserved <laughs> as, as any of us do. But it, it's, it's a, as Dave said, it's, it's a tough subject. I think it's one, uh, you know, that we needed to continue to evolve on. Mm-hmm. Scott, we have to make sure also that we protect the, the integrity of the investigation. Uh, and we have to make sure that everything's done in the correct way. And sometimes that involves us saying, look, I can't tell you that now, but I might be able to tell you that later on. Uh, and, you know, I... I in law enforcement and as, as prosecutors, you know, we have an incredible amount of information that we know about a huge amount of people that we don't talk about. See, that comes down to trust, though, Dave. You know, I, I think that, you know, those who have been involved in investiga- investigations, it's frustrating sometimes for the media, for the public to not get that information. But then you have a lot of people out there who are saying, well, they're hiding something. They're, right. they're not giving the information because it makes them look bad. I completely understand that. I mean, you look at us. We've been involved as, as district attorneys for like a combined 35 years here. So now we at least have a little track record that we can come out and say, 
look, it's under control. Trust me, we'll, you know, we'll release the information when the time comes. But you're right, it is different maybe for somebody who's brand new or hasn't been confronted with this situation before. That's why it's such a tough issue. However, uh, it, it really does make me proud that we're part of an organization that's willing to tackle something like this. Yeah, first of its, of its kind in the country. Let's take some phone calls. Dan in Mechanicsburg. Dan, you're on the air. Hello, Dan? Dan, I know you're there. I can hear you. I don't know what Dan, Dan must have got a little bit, uh, have been on the line too long. Let's take uh, Greg in Lancaster. Is this Greg? No, I'm running out of, uh, here we go. Edward in Lancaster. Edward, you're on the air. Hey, this is this is the other guy. How you doing Oh, there? you're Dan? Yes, I'm Dan. Okay, <laughs> somehow I, I got some miscommunication here so we can see how it happens. Go ahead, Dan. Okay, fine. Uh, those are two fine gentlemen there, those particular DAs. But what I want to say, they had just talked about the putting the information out regarding a police shooting and withholding it and so forth. When a police officer is not at a police officer is not a private citizen that's being investigated for a sexual crime. So when he takes that oath of office, he needs to know that he has to be stand before a higher judgment. Otherwise, he can go into you know become a private citizen. That's number one. Now in New York State, uh, the governor there I think last year signed a law that police-involved shootings go to already designated special investigators and prosecutors. They take it right out of the local policeman's hands. Okay, so we don't have to go to Alaska to get this done. And I don't know why in this state we can't simply say, we can't do it that way. We can't say, hey, why can't they, uh, the uh, governor say, hey, these, are, these prosecutors in these areas will take a look at those shootings and the ones that are fearless We'll just throw out and move on because most of them are because 97% of police officers do their job, but there's 3% out there that we need to take a look at. Thank you. Thank you very much for your call, gentlemen. Well, I, I mean, I, he raises some of the points that, that we've discussed here. Uh, a police officer is different, different, and when it comes to, to naming them, in the last one we had, we didn't name him during the course of the investigation. We did sort of what Dave had recommended uh, because we didn't want other people the media, uh, you know, questioning him, bugging him, and, and worried about his safety. But once the investigation was completed, we did r release the name. To the point about, you know, the independent prosecutor, uh, that's obviously a robust debate that, that will probably continue to go on. Uh, but, you know, we make those calls every day. You know, we decide wh when there's a conflict to, to give the case to, to someone else. Uh, and, you know, we, we are the ones that are most first. If you appoint some special prosecutor, they're not used to doing this day in and day out like we are, looking at the law, knowing the facts, knowing our community, uh, and, and knowing where to go. And I think we have some credibility. You know, I, I've made the difficult decision to charge a police officer with homicide. You know, when, when the facts and the law warrants, we'll do that. Uh, no one takes pleasure in that, just like no one takes pleasure in charging anybody with, with any type of homicide because they're tragic all around. Uh, but, you know, when we have to, we'll do it. These guidelines... Dave, let me just uh, with this because I only have a few minutes left. But these guidelines also address when video 
uh, police-involved shooting video should be released. We know that one of the reasons that this has become such an issue across the country is because so many of these incidents have been captured on video. Dave, what about that? When should the decision be to should be made about when should the decision be made to release video? Or not? Well, I understand why that's such an interesting thing for for and maybe sometimes difficult for for people in Pennsylvania because you see other states where 911 calls and videos right, right. and police videos. And uh, we don't have that here are, are out there right, right away. Yeah. Uh, we cannot release them. Uh, if we have a video that we're going to use as evidence, we can't release it until it's used as evidence uh, in a criminal proceeding. So maybe a preliminary hearing or maybe a trial. That's the example of the case that, that Ed had in Dauphin County. It came out after a trial. Now, I know there was a battle about that with the, the media trying to get it. And then there's some tactical decisions made as well. So uh, that's something where, where Pennsylvania law maybe isn't in the same place that the law is uh, in, in other places. And we're going to be confronted with that now. You know, some of the videos that we've talked about are private people filming. Mm-hmm. Some are, you know, police, whether they're wearing body cams or it's, or it's uh, film, filmed by a taser. Uh, and of course, we have to worry, as the guardians of the investigation, we have to worry about tainting a jury pool and if a video is out there. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody can dispute uh, regardless of the result, that that the officer that was charged in Dauphin County got a fair trial, and okay, I think which Dauphin you're talking about, uh, Hummelstown? Officer right, Merkel right, in Hummelstown. Right, right. But part and partial of that was the fact that that video wasn't out there uh, in the public for everybody to see and be dissected. It was seen by the jurors in the criminal case, which, to my mind, as the guardian of the investigation, is the appropriate way for that to happen. Mm-hmm. So, when just to clarify these recommendations, when will video be released? The recommend- when won't want to be the recommendation. Uh, state that if an officer is charged, as we had in Hummelstown, that the video not be released because it could, as, as Dave very well expressed, taint the jury. If the officer is found to be justified, no charges are filed, then it can be released b- because there's no pending trial. All right, let's take one more call. Edward is in Lancaster. Edward, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Hi. Oh, my question is, um, the DA is talking about best practices. Okay, and best practices, your recommendations. Um, now, you're talking about referring the case to another local agency, another state police agency, et cetera, et cetera. How is that best practices? If, if you were thinking about best practices, what about like an uh, independent civilian review, review board outside, excuse me, outside any police um, entity? So you're, you're talking basically about a grand jury. Well, I mean, a civilian, a civilian um, review board, okay. uh, civilians, right. no state police, no police agency, uh, best practices. How, how would that be best practices if you still have some kind of police agency re- I'm, I'm doing the reviewing? How, okay. how can that be um, best practice? All right, Edward, you know, thank there's you. There's no trust. You know, that the police are like a clan. They stick together. You know, uh, if it's a state police, it doesn't matter. It's, it's not... Uh, all right, Edward. Thank you very much for your call. Well, uh, I don't necessarily agree that that, that the police are, are a clan and they stick together. I think uh, they generally adhere uh, to their oath. Uh, a, 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 a civilian review board. Uh, I'm not sure that's a best practice, frankly, to, to refer something to, to people that don't necessarily have the experience or the tech, technical expertise to make these decisions. Now, I think a lot of police agencies have that, especially in the cities, to look at things and, and, and do sort of an after action. Uh, you know, there's there's a great example of 
you know, if you're going to go in for brain surgery, do you want your brain surgeon making that decision or do you want to have uh, a group of people deciding whether you can have the surgery and how the surgery should be done? So there is a sense in which, you know, the people who've developed the professional expertise have to be involved uh, in making that decision. Independent agency should be an independent agency with experience. You know, you can't get too bogged down in the details here, frankly, but I don't think you can create something out of whole cloth. You have to have somebody that's got the experience, at least in, in doing some investigations. We're almost out of time for this segment. I want to thank both of you for being on today. So what do you, what does the District Attorney's Association want to see come out of this? We want to see better investigations with more transparency, investigations and prosecutions uh, that are that have the integrity behind them to give the public confidence in the process. Mm -hmm. Ed Marsico is Dauphin County District Attorney, and, and uh, Dave Freed is Cumberland County's District Attorney. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Donald Trump ran for president, promising to repeal the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Now that Trump has been elected president, alternatives to, alternatives to Obamacare are already being discussed. If the ACA was repealed, what would the impact be here in Pennsylvania? WITF's transforming health reporter Ben Allen has been looking into this issue. Ben, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Scott. Very first story you wrote about this a week or so ago, uh, the word drastic yeah. stuck yeah. out to me. Uh, so there would be a drastic impact here in Pennsylvania? Well, well, let's kind of set this up, and let's go broad angle here for a second. Often when you hear about the Affordable Care Act, you hear about the exchange. People on the exchange, these are people buying insurance through the federal marketplace or the exchange, whatever you want to call it. That population, Scott, that's about 500,000 to 550,000. But when we look at how many people are on Medicaid through the expansion, which is also a part of the Affordable Care Act, that's 670,000, more than 670,000. So there's actually more people that are getting coverage through the Medicaid expansion than getting coverage through the exchange. Uh, Medicaid in Pennsylvania is one-third of total state spending, one-third of total state spending. So you've got more than 670,000 people uh, getting coverage through Medicaid. These are low-income people. These, this, these are not people rolling in money, low-income people. And as a result, um, this is a part of the Affordable Care Act. If the Affordable Care Act was repealed and there wasn't some kind of replacement or the replacement wasn't to Pennsylvania's liking, um, these people could be uninsured. Uh, once again, uh, it could be uh, a throwback to the past. Um, you could move to pre-Affordable Care Act where uh, these people um, would be going to emergency rooms, uh, would be uh, going to federally qualified health centers, which are really the only kinds of that's like a doctor's office, essentially. But they're only scattered throughout the throughout the state. They're not, you know, it, it's not like they're on every corner like uh, other places. Yeah, you destroyed this morning the yeah. Hamilton Health Center in Harrisburg. Right. I mean, that's, that's one of the busiest in the state. Um, but, the, you know, a lot of people, some people will drive an hour to Hamilton, drive an hour to Hamilton because it's one of the few places they can get services. So anyway, let's just get back to, to the Affordable Care Act. If it's repealed and not replaced, 670,000 people, more than 670,000 people could lose their Medicaid coverage. And these are newly eligible people. These aren't people that have gotten Medicaid coverage uh, necessarily, have, have come out of the woodwork. These are newly eligible people 
that could lose coverage. So, you know, one, there, there are a couple keys here to, right. to the discussion. Uh, you've mentioned with almost every sentence that you had there, if it is not replaced. One of the differences I kind of see here from the original debate over Obama or the Affordable Care Act is that Republican leaders, now I don't know about Trump himself, but Republican leaders like Paul Ryan, for example, have discussed, okay, if Obamacare is repealed, that we would have to replace it with something. Is is that kind of uh, the sentiment in Washington, even amongst Republicans? Well, I, I think, um, and I want to talk a little bit about what Republicans have proposed uh, here. Paul Ryan was on 60 Minutes last night talking about Medicaid expansion, talking about the Affordable Care Act. And um, one of the things, and probably the most prominent thing that people have talked about, Republicans, House Republicans, is a block grant. A block grant basically means the feds give you a pot of money and you do it with it whatever you want. If you're in Pennsylvania, maybe they decide to cover people up to 100% of the federal poverty line. If you're in Missouri, maybe they only decide to cover people up to 50% of the poverty line. It's all up to how a state would handle it uh, with a block grant. So that's the positive. People like that, like the idea of a block grant, because it's flexibility. You say people like it, who? I I think uh, policymakers like the idea, state leaders especially, like the idea because the feds don't necessarily say this is what you have to do. They like the flexibility. Hey, if we want to cover ambulance rides, we can cover that. If we want to cover every single doctor's visit, we can decide to cover that if it's financially feasible. Yeah. Yeah, it's very flexible. Here's the rub, though, and this is a big rub. Black grants often are underfunded. So if if you and I talked to the state official uh, who told me, yeah, a black grant on it on its face sounds good. But they often don't keep up with inflation. They often don't keep up with actually serving the population we were previously allowed to serve or able to serve. And they, they really don't, don't adjust to, to conditions on the ground. A block grant, in, in one case in Pennsylvania, one block grant, Scott, um, for a particular program has not changed. The amount has not changed since the late 1990s. We're, we're here in 2017. One block grant hasn't changed its amount in more than 20 years. Never mind any other rising costs, just pure inflation. If I could buy something for the same price in 1990 as I could now, boy, I would take that deal. Okay. And again, there are so many aspects yeah. to this. But when you're talking about Medicaid, uh, originally under the Corbett administration, Republican Corbett administration, Pennsylvania was not going to accept Medicaid funding from uh, the federal government. Part of the deal here, the way that uh, one of the incentives for states to accept it was that the federal government reimburse states 100% for the first few years, and then, what was it, 90%? It it goes to 95% at the start of 2017, and then it drops 1%, and then it'll sit at 90% starting in 2020, I believe. So, if Obamacare was repealed, it makes sense that the, that funding would go away for states, which would pretty much kill Medicaid or at least reimbursement from the federal government. It would kill the expansion. So here's where things get really tricky, Scott. So basically, if you're a regular, let's say you're a regular Medicaid patient before the expansion even existed, the federal government pays about 51 percent of your cost in Pennsylvania right now. 
But if you're in the expansion population right now, the federal government starting in January will pay 95%. So I did some back-of-the-envelope math. Here's the math. If Pennsylvania, because Pennsylvania theoretically, if they wanted to, could decide to keep all those people on Medicaid. Could you state funds? Right, yeah. Could you state funds to keep those people on Medicaid? I did some back of the envelope math. I used uh, the the actuarial table from uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in in uh, at the federal government level. They say the average cost for a newly eligible adult in Medicaid in 2015 was about $5,000. So the average cost was about $5,000 to insure them for that entire year. If you take half of that, let's say Pennsylvania, walk down the theoretical road with me for a second. <laughs> let's say Pennsylvania says, okay, fine, you're going to end Medicaid expansion. We'll pick it up. We'll pick up the cost of these 670,000 people. That would cost the state in new, new expenditures, it would cost the state $1.64 billion. $1.64 billion a year to cover these these newly eligible people that have been getting coverage for the past year. Where in Pennsylvania is $1.64 billion to cover people who are who who need health care? That sounds very close to uh, what the independent uh, fiscal office says the, our budget deficit is. So, right. Speaking of which, we do have the independent fiscal office in uh, tomorrow to talk about uh, the, the recommendations. All right. Now, getting back to what will be repealed, what won't be repealed. Right. And again, all of this is speculation because we don't know. Right. But Republicans seem to be on board with keeping some aspects of the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, when I hear that, I think, okay, well, that's good for those people who like those things, right. keeping children on parents' uh, coverage till uh, age 26, um, you know, pre-existing conditions that someone can't be left off or shouldn't be insured. But I, I, I ask myself, where is that money coming from? And this is what's something that health policy or health economists who are much smarter than me, health economists who are much smarter than me say, the insurance marketplace, it'll collapse. You can't keep the popular things and then discard the less popular things and somehow make the math work. Again, these are people much smarter than me who have looked at the numbers have assembled all these different analogies. One analogy is the three-legged stool. If you chop off one of those legs, that stool is going to collapse. If you chop off the mandate that everyone gets coverage, that 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 could significantly hurt uh, the insurance marketplace. We know how difficult things are now, Scott. Let's not act like this is a rosy well, world. But you see, that's that's part yeah. of it. That's part of it is Obamacare was so unpopular right. and did not do some things that it was supposed to do, like control costs. Right. Uh, and there were so many problems involved with it that that's one of the reasons that uh, you know people took a second look at it. And, and people now, though, are, are also nervous that if there's a lot of talk about all this repeal and a lot of talk about that, what will happen to insurers who are already leaving the exchange market? Right. What will happen? Will they decide to leave next year because they don't know if the exchange is going to exist in three, four, five years? Are they going to be out of there and then another 500, 550,000 people are going to have to try and finagle health insurance uh. coverage somewhere else with, without tax credits that they currently get to, to get that insurance? I mean, this, it's, it, you can't overstate how much of a mess 
this is going to be. You, I'm, I'm not trying to be alarmist, but this, there are a lot, a lot of moving pieces, and this is people's health we're talking about. This could be perhaps one of the big stories of the next two, three, four years. Let's take a phone call from Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. I think Ben has has essentially said what I was going to say, but let me let me say it in different words. Uh, during the the campaign, uh, Trump and the Republicans uh, said, oh, "We're going to repeal and replace Obamacare." And and basically, well, when you were when you were a kid, your mom said that you can't have dessert without having your spinach first, and that's basically the deal we have here. Is uh, in order to have the good things of Obamacare, which is uh, uh, adult uh, children get to stay on their parents' plans and uh, no pre-existing conditions and all that kind of stuff, uh, you have to have the spinach. And the spinach is mandating co- uh, everybody get coverage, and if you don't get coverage, you've got to pay a penalty or a fine of some, of some type. And, and we were uh, – the, the Trump folks and, and the Republicans essentially misled people. They, they believe they, – they told people – that there essentially was a free lunch, and now the chickens are coming home to roost, as as Ben is saying, there is no free lunch. Uh, there's no question that Obamacare needs some modifications, and frankly, the Obama administration wanted to make some changes, and Congress blocked them every time they tried to do it. So, like I said, the chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah, it, it's it's certainly going to be a challenge, Scott, because uh, Thanks, you Jim. know, yeah, as the as the caller pointed out. Um, Thing, things in terms of economics are, are looking really difficult uh, when it comes to the health insurance space. And some people that, that I, I follow and, again, are, are much smarter than me say that, in fact, if you wanted to fix uh, the Affordable Care Act, fix Obamacare, you should have actually raised the penalty for not having insurance, maybe doubled, even tripled it to incentivize more people to get coverage. That's, that's one of the big problems yeah. with it, isn't raise it? raise yeah. the penalty. It's still at $700, which, to be fair, I mean, that's $700. Right. That's that's a right. penalty. But some people that look at the numbers say it should be even higher so that you drive more people into the insurance marketplace. And then uh, the other thing is some, some people say you should even increase the federal subsidies that they offer for people who want to buy insurance in the exchange. Massachusetts has gone through this. Massachusetts Massachusetts has gone through this. Uh, uninsurance in Massachusetts is essentially zero percent. If you look at it, um, it, it you know it's like point one, point two, point three percent because of Romney Care, as it's called in Massachusetts. And it, it went through this experiment, and Massachusetts solved it. They, they solved many of the problems. Now, of course. I'm not going to sit here and say that the marketplace is perfect, that the health system is perfect, but there are very real solutions out there. And if you disregard those solutions and look at just taking the good and throwing away the things that people don't like and um, governing based on polling, um, it can be it can be very difficult. And I think that the fallout uh, would be would be uh, very severe. Uh, going forward. One other thing that I did want to mention uh, is Paul Ryan uh, has talked about refundable tax credits. 
Uh, that's another proposal to make sure that everyone could get coverage. Um, hard to see uh, whether that will work, but essentially it's like what we have now. It's the system we have now. It's subsidies um, for people vouchers, to buy insurance. Uh, yeah, I mean, refundable people, yeah. tax credits is, is the thing that... Uh, so, again, a lot to talk about, a lot to di dissect. Uh, thanks for having me on this, Well, uh, th th that's what we keep you employed, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> ben Alice is WITS Transforming Health Reporter to learn more about uh, this issue and others, a deeper look at the changing tide of health care. Check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system. Online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's mo program, I mentioned earlier, the Independent Fiscal Office, Matthew Niddle, who is the director, will be our guest talking about state finances.